Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 295, recorded August 4th, 2022, and I am Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. It's good to have you back. Good to be back. Uh, for people out there listening, we kind of batched some stuff up so that we on vacation for a couple of weeks, but now our news items will be more closely related in time to the release of the episode. Uh, oh, sh we didn't do that. It was live. All no, it was uh, always live. Always live. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you got back quickly. And speaking of fast, you've got a fast story for us. Yeah. How about we make things faster? So I want to talk about Flask and Court. So Flask is Flask. It's one of the most popular web frameworks out there. Court is the API compatible async version of Flask. Originally done by Philip Jones, but I think that Philip has joined David Lord in, in at least in support of the Palettes organization. I feel like Flask and Court are working much closer together these days. So I don't know exactly what the relationship is, but Flask and Court are very closely tied together right now. Yeah. What I want to talk about is routing, or for those UK friends, routing if you prefer, but the idea of taking a URL and figuring out what function to call. Right. So what you do is you you set up in Flask, you say at app.get, app.post, and you give it URL pattern. Sometimes that's just like slash about. Other times it's like slash categories, bracket category name, or even more general stuff, like where you might say it's category, maybe a category ID, and it has to be an integer. So convert that for me. Or I want to just capture arbitrary path, arbitrary URLs slash edit, whatever that happens to be. So that's the idea of routing. And the whole article here, something, the big news is that Philip Jones has worked on Vexoig, the HTTP router that is the foundation of doing the routing in Flask and Court. And it's something like five times faster than it was before. I think five times the number. Wow. Much faster. So for very small little toy apps, if you have a couple of routes, whatever, it's no big deal. However, if you've got a production app like say talk python training where you've got hundreds at least hundreds of routes when a url comes in you could spend a, a decent amount of time checking is it is it get or is it post is it this url and actually this thing here can we convert it to an integer because if not that's a 404 it's a different route and you know, like all the the stuff that goes on there yeah so the way that it worked previously is it just when you would specify these routes like app.get slash api and api slash angle bracket id those types of things, it would just come up with a table that just says, okay, here's the get verb, here's the path, and here's the function that it goes to. And it was using regular expressions. So slash API or slash API and then backslash D plus, right? The regular expression for a number. Okay. And the way it works is it just says, okay, we're going to run the verb test, the regex test, all those things one at a time, top to bottom. Well, Brian, I know you studied a lot of uh, computer stuff. This is not <laughs> uh, not something that's good that grows with time, right? As you add more of these, it's it's uh, complexity. What is it? Something like O of N or maybe, maybe a little bit O of N squared, maybe? I'm not sure. Something like that where you, because you're testing the verbs and you're testing the things, right? So as you get yeah. these larger and larger, you're like running through them every single request. And the world is full of interesting data structures and algorithms that you might consider. So the idea was this is going to get rewritten into something that's not just the sort of brute force test it top to bottom in the order that it's defined here. Yeah. 
And so I think one thing, it's interesting, the news that routing in Flask and Court is five times faster. That's fantastic. But also just thinking about the algorithms. I think it's a cool problem solver, uh, problem solving ex, you know, thing to go look at, right? An example. So Philip thought about different uh, ways in which you might do this and how it works. So the first algorithm that he looked at was a Radix tree. And this is an interesting tree structure that gets defined where instead of having a table, you have all the verbs. And then under each verb, you've got the API, uh, the, the path pattern. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting here is uh, they have a path type. So if you were building uh, a CMS or something that would handle arbitrary URLs, right? So you could build, say, a database thing that says, here's a URL and here's the content to show for that URL. How do you express all the variations of that in the routing of Flask or other frameworks is you just say it's a path type instead of an integer or something along those lines, right? So there's kind of this wild card thing that makes it a little bit harder. So you've got this get and you've got this post, uh, you've got API. Remember we had slash API and we had slash API slash ID. So what gets created is a, there's a get node in the tree, then an API node that if it matches exactly terminates, but uh, at, at the that call, but if not, then it also has the, well, keep going and match the next part of the path as a number. And if that matches, then you're going to get this, this next segment. Otherwise you'll go to the next part of the tree and cruise through it. What do you think of that? That looks cool, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, yeah, it looks good and also faster because um, uh, you you don't look at everything. Right, exactly. You say, is it a get or post? Boom, you've like, you're down to like one segment. Then you're like, well, what's this next path? And you you really quickly cruise through, um, cruise through the various possibilities. And this looks really great until you get down to this wild card thing. And it turns out with all the variations and whatnot uh, of like the wild card matching and the sub wildcard matching. It didn't really work that well. So, but one benefit is the performance is now described as O of N, which is pretty good, better than N squared oh. or something like that. Yeah. Or yeah. And it, N is the depth now, not the... Uh... Right. And it's, that's very important. It's the depth rather than just the, the number, which is even better, right? Because... I think I'm still confused if, uh, if like, if they're all gets, for instance, if like most of your API is retrieval, are they all going to be falling into that wildcard thing then? Yeah, yeah, I think they would, but then they, they would just be one more, I think it'd be one more step. Like okay. It splits pretty quick on the, the second part, but still it's not that relevant because that's, that turned out to not work. What worked is something I would have never, never thought should apply <laughs> to this pathfinding, path determining algorithm. Ooh. And that's a state machine. Awesome. <laughs> are you a fan of state machines? Yes, I am. I love them. Yeah. Yeah. State machines are pretty wild. You know, I'm I'm in the current editing state. Now, what are my options? Where could I go from here? Things like that. So you define the same set of routes, but what you get is a state machine that has these transitions. And for example, state one says, if you go to API, we'll go to state two. Or if you do some wildcard slash edit, then the answer is you just do the edit or you just do the true wildcard thing and then you do some other other step there, right? Pretty okay. interesting. And then say for this API where it says go to state two, state two says, well, if there's nothing else, you've already gone through API, then you call the, the function create API you're looking for. Otherwise, if it's a number, go to state three and state three says, well, if that's it, then you're done. Otherwise, you're in this wildcard state and so on. And the way that you kind of bounce between these states it's pretty fascinating. 
Uh, yeah, and also like, how is this faster? <laughs> but <laughs> exactly, yes, it doesn't. That's I, like I said, I would have never thought about it because it it also doesn't seem faster. Yeah. However, you get to the benchmarking section, and it says, uh, I think by having twenty routes here or something, it came out to be uh, quite a bit faster. Uh, let's see. Boom, 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 boom. Ratio of this one says. 50% better. I said five times and maybe it's not that much faster, but somewhere I know there's a five. There's gotta be. Yeah, here we go. Factor up to five times uh, speed increase. And the more routes you have, the faster, the, the bigger the increase is. The more complicated and big your application is, the more it's going to benefit from this, right? I think it says that if you're looking at just like a toy example, you can run the benchmarks all you want. It's not going to make any difference. But for realistic ones, it'll be quite a bit faster. So, huh. Pretty cool. Uh, if you're using Flask Record, be sure to use the latest version because uh, the version that's coming out with this, this is going to make it a lot faster for you. And uh, just an interesting example of how you might have a non-obvious solution to a problem like a state machine for finding the URL matches. Yeah. And yeah. Brandon out the audience says, I, I agree. I don't see how this is faster. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. But the cool thing about computers is you push the button and then it does a thing and then... <laughs> You know, right? It's, well, it's not like uh, you got to have a theory and then you debate the theory and like, it's, it's measurable. One of the interesting things around this also is that you can't assume much uh, for, for Flask or Court because it, it, they're frameworks that other people build up websites with. So um, some people are going to have like big, thick foresty trees that have lots of branching and everything for their, for their routes. And some people are going to have like, oh, let's just throw half the stuff in one in one directory or so, or one bucket or something like that. Right, so, that's true. A lot of people have different variations of how they construct the URLs that map yeah. into your site, and the, that also affects it. That's true. true. So you kind of have to have both be like like one, you know, faster or not. You just have to not be slower, and in, in really any case. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. Also, looking at the state machine, there's only four states. Most most things terminate in one or two steps. So. Okay. Instead of testing four or five, six different regular expressions, doing one yeah. or two. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it is interesting. All right. What do you got next for us? Well, uh, speaking of court, we've got court O or Corto. And actually, it's funny. I have no idea if this is built on court or not. Probably not. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, so Corto, um, this was, oh, somebody suggested it. Paul McKenzie. Um, this is a, uh, this is a thing to build documents and stuff, but it's, um, it's open source and it's, uh, it's, it's, they say open source scientific and technical publishing system built on Pandoc. So we love Pandoc. I, at least I do. It's it converts Markdown to really anything else or rest to other stuff. Um, like a, a whole bunch of stuff. You can convert things to, to like PDFs or even eBooks and, uh, HTML documents, all sorts of things. Um, so this is, and then Jupiter, of course, Jupiter's great for a lot of scientific uh, Python research and data science, and even just learning Python and playing and stuff. And and uh, I've kind of liked to see uh, lately some people doing uh, presentations, even with with just right within um, uh, Jupiter notebooks, which is kind of fun. And I know people are teaching that way with tutorials. But anyway, so Cordo is a system where you can do, you can have documents be either Markdown documents or Jupyter Notebooks and have a combination of these things around and then build up stuff. So you can, so, you know, you've got like a Jupyter Notebook and a, 
demo and some some markdown and stuff and then you can convert the whole thing to a website or a um a journal entry or you know a publication ready for a journal or a, a website or an ebook or really anything so this is pretty exciting i think it's i think it's very neat the idea you can take a notebook put a little extra metadata into it and then publish it to all these different sources. Have you seen how much you can do? You know, this is based on Pandoc. Have you seen how much you can do with Pandoc? Have you seen the conversion? Like here, I, I'll pull up their homepage here. Um, you just go to pandoc.org. See on the right, that thing that looks like gray shading? <laughs> yeah. Those are the different formats that it can convert from or to. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so just it's like not- unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So when you say, okay, well... If I could take my notebook and then power it through Pandoc to do these things, like the output possibilities are insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it even does, uh, like one of the things that was unexpected uh, for me is the presentation. So you can convert one of these to um, to like to a- PowerPoint? Um, yeah, even to PowerPoint. Or um, I was excited about Reveal.js. I, I yeah. like Reveal. Uh, but, and then Beamer. I don't know what Beamer is, but- I've uh, never heard of Beamer either. Um, it's going to be our new favorite way to present. Oh, I see. You can create Beamer LaTeX. I see. So it's Beamer maybe is a little more like scientific, uh, mathematical, where you okay. have to, you know, here's the integral of this or like where you've got really specific huh. things possibly. I don't know. Uh, so, specific formulas. And then within each of these formats, there's things like, so um, I use Reveal.js, for instance, but you can, there's, uh, it, the documentation is great. It talks about using using this to create like you know code blocks and line highlighting. And well, check this out. You've got um uh, line hide line highlighting that goes uh, incremental. So you could have uh, stages. You can uh, instead of step creating three slides, for instance, uh, that have just slightly different highlighted text. You can say what order you want things highlighted in as you step through them. So um, I'm going to try this for a presentation. I might try this as well. This is pretty neat, actually. Um, I was excited also about the ebook stu- feature. Uh, you can even publish EPUB. Uh, I was talking to Matt um, Matt Harrison about this, and Matt pointed out that he'd seen this, but he was uh, if you really care about like indexing or the front matter or the back matter, this doesn't quite get there um, for generating that stuff. Um, but uh, there's cross cross references and. All sorts of things that it does do. So if you're, you know, just starting out a, a publication, this would be kind of fun. So um, I'm excited about this. The the reason, one of the reasons why I brought up EPUB is um, I read all my uh, I read all my uh, ebooks on a Kindle, and whenever I used to see this, I was like, but do Moby also because I want to be able to read yes, it on my Kindle. Yes, exactly. But um, I don't have the link here. But uh, Kindle Amazon is doing a conversion this year, so. Um, right now the mail to the last time I sent a, a Moby document to my Kindle through the email feature, um, it emailed me back and said, we did this, but, uh, EPUB is preferred now. Um, so, oh, interesting. Uh, they're kind of moving away from the Moby format and back into, to EPUB. So that's really cool. Cool. Yeah. I use the send to Kindle app. It's some weird old archaic kind of app format. Yeah. I try. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I can't. It's some weird sort of install an app on off the web that's not a progressive web app. I can't remember what it is. It's something. Oh, okay. I think from Adobe. It's some bizarre format, but yeah, that's what See, I, I just. I just you you get a free you get like this email address that you can send stuff to, and it just goes right to your Kindle. Um, yeah, nice. So that's what I use usually. 
Anyway, I would so probably use that if I I didn't have so many Kindles over the years, and I don't know which is the real <laughs> which email for it. Exactly, I have like five Kindles over, and I lost some of them. You well, gotta email, like unregister them, be? man. Oh come on, yes, I should do that. Um, I? But uh, the, so for the website stuff, it's kind of fun too. So this will generate websites for you, um, and uh, there, and then it has oh, GitHub pages. Yeah, it has publishing input, publishing in it too. So you can you can hook this up to a GitHub action and just say Quattro publish and be pu- using this to publish stuff too. So uh, this is really kind of cool. The whole the whole infrastructure around um, documentation and publishing around scientific computing. So I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, I love it. It's great. Now before we move on, Brian. Yes, another thing I'm excited about is uh, Microsoft for Microsoft for Startups. Uh, it's the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. So this episode of Python Bytes is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups. Starting a business is hard, but by some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in the first year. Ouch. With this in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and create a digital platform to help overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Um, It provides all founders at any stage with free resources to help solve startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance, and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and so much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get? Speed up development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud with the ability to unlock credits over time to help your startup innovate. Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups, Founders Hub, uh, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to mentors, their mentorship network, giving you access to a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines, across areas like validation, fundraising, management, and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with with mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. To join the program, visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. The link is in your show notes. Awesome. Yeah, thanks Microsoft for supporting the show. They're they're big backers of Python Bytes and definitely help yeah. amplify what we're doing here. I think the awesome, most awesome thing is the mentors and the advice and the support you get. Yeah, well, this is one of the things I think is awesome is this when I when I read about this, I think about um, like uh, the startup um, the startup access that people get if they're in like Silicon Valley or right, like Y Combinator or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. But this is but that's you only get a handful of those a year, and this is open to a way way more people. So that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. All right, can I take you on a diversion to show you something pretty cool? Yeah. All right. So. Um, Dart is a programming language that we don't usually talk about on Python Bytes, right? And no. Dart is a language that that came out from Google, and I felt like it was trying to compete with JavaScript to a large degree and didn't really gain a lot of traction until okay. Flutter came along. And Flutter is a really cool way to design mobile and desktop native applications using Dart, right? It's 
think of it as an alternative to Cordova, PhoneGap, uh, Xamarin, uh, Ionic, all these different sort of generic ways to build uh, apps that run on different platforms. So with Flutter, I can build an app that runs on iOS and Android, but I can also compile it as a target to macOS, Linux, and Windows. And I can even compile it to a target for the web where it'll run as a progressive web app, okay? And you get okay. some really cool apps, like the, by far the most well-known one, known one is the BMW car. If you have a BMW, this is like the app that is your car, but there's there's other ones as well. It's used a lot within Google, obviously, right? Now you may be wondering- I would be, be if I bought a car and all I got was an app. I know, I would be too. By, by the way, sidebar, BMW's doing all sorts of weird stuff. They're like charging you subscriptions to use your seat heaters. $18 a month subscription to turn on the seat heater that's already in your car. <laughs> so I, the least the thing I'd be upset about is the app. Okay. But <laughs> that's, a, that's something else. Now, why in the world am I talking about Flutter and Dart? I'm actually looking into using Flutter and Dart to rebuild the TalkPython training apps so that we can have um, Mac OS, Windows, and Linux, in addition to the iOS and Android version, and give it like a refresh. And it's a really cool technology that I, I'm pretty excited about. So let me introduce you to something called Flet. Have okay. you heard of Flet? Well, just because Brandon just mentioned it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about Flet. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, very timely, Brandon. So Flet comes, was. Oh, uh, sent over to us from Mikhail Hankala. And Flut is the fastest way to build Flutter apps, but instead of using the Dart programming language, use Python. Oh, perfect. So let me see if I can, I'll go to the getting started. I'll pull up a little example here. Um, so there's a, an app here. Check it out, it's a calculator. And look at it, it's got a nice little animated, animated GIF showing how it works. And you know, this looks like a proper calculator app you would see on a mobile phone or something, right? Yeah, it looks like my and iPhone could, calculator. Yeah, exactly. You could even go see uh, interactive version that is running in your browser because one of the six or seven compile targets is your browser. And I don't know if you noticed, but how quick did that load? Way faster than PyScript or any of these other things. It was like nearly instant. So if you go through and you look at how you build it, you just create a main method in Python and it, it's provided a page. You say flat.app and you just give it the function to call. And here you say, I'm just gonna add some text called hello world, right? So you get your hello world here, but you don't want that, you want some controls. So I'm gonna add a bunch of elevated buttons with like the buttons that are on the calculator, like one, two, three, star, plus, minus, and so on. And you end up with this column of that. That's, that's kind of interesting, but you want these in rows and columns. So you would say, I'm creating a row which has some controls for elevated buttons. Another row, right? So these are the rows of the calculators. And look at that already, how cool it is to define that UI with wow. just, just that in neat. Python. Yeah. Right? It's pretty neat. And because it's Flutter, all of these things have native representations on their platforms, right? Uh, in Mac OS, it looks like a Mac OS button and Windows looks like a Windows button and so on. You got to put styles to make it look like, you know, the, the calculator app type of thing. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. You just go and you put all these uh, controls together like this and you say go. And then somewhere in here, there's a place where it talks about handling the input. But yeah, so here, uh, you just say, I have uh, create a class and then on click, it's self dot button clicked or, or whatever it is, whatever you're interested in. And what it's going to pass over is the actual button, the elevated button that was clicked, the uh, event source or whatever you call it. Wow. Right, so you just you just say I'm 
hook into these different button click events like you would with any sort of UI reactive framework. And now you have a calculator or you've got a, what other kind of app you want to build? Isn't that cool? It's very neat. So um, you can build both. So you, I think pe- some people would use this for uh, iOS or uh, or Android, right? A mobile device. But mm-hmm. you said there's other things too, like you can test it out. Would you realistically use this to develop a um, like a web app? Would you? I think developing a web app seems like it would be totally reasonable. If one of the things, if you look here, if you go to the roadmap, the the mobile story is not yet complete, actually. Okay. So right now, I would think of it as more of a desktop type of thing. But as you saw with that example, there's also a web. So desktop and sort of progressive web app okay. story. Right. The mobile story is not yet finished, but that's what's on the roadmap. And I would love to see it, see it come along and, and make good progress. There, yeah. There's also the possibility of other languages. That's not super interested, interesting to me, but because I, I want to write Python anyway, but you know, they have like Go and C Sharp and stuff as possible other programming languages. Yeah. But things like having a built-in database with a simple ORM, it sounds way more it's way more powerful than it sounds because if you're in the web, well, how do you do database stuff? You know, the web has local storage and it has like a SQL, a wimpy SQL thing that's embedded in like offline yeah. storage for your app. If you're on iOS, you've got SQL Lite built in and stuff, but figuring out all those variations is a pain. But if you can just say, create a database and do queries against it with an ORM, all of a sudden that gives you a super cool offline data access story, yeah. right? Yeah. And and so on. So anyway, yeah, I think there's a lot of neat things that are coming here. This is created by, let me see if I got the name, by Fedora uh, Fitzner. I'm actually having Fedora on Talk Python next week to talk about this. So we're going to be diving even more into it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But Nice. I don't know how ready this is for producing actual finished applications. Flutter is absolutely ready to go, right? It's been around for many years and there's lots of things being put out in production for it. Flat on top of Flutter? Don't totally know. I'll ask for later uh, next week and we'll know a little bit more. But when I look at this, this is really exciting because it looks like it builds applications that I would really want to use using modern paradigms and all sorts of cool stuff. So, And you should be able to integrate with all the Flutter things, which is great. Neat. Yeah. Anyway, very cool. Thank you, Mikhail, for sending that over. Um, so that's a UI thing. Um, I'd like to switch gears to the command line. Uh, so I <laughs> to the was, TUI to the to the Kali yeah. the TUI the text TUI. user interface. Oh yeah, text user interface. Yeah, that's um. Uh, anyway, so like with rich and textual and things like that. So um, I was really excited about this article actually, and now I'm a little confused. So I'm glad I I'm going to talk it through, and you can let I'd like to hear what you think. So. So the, this, I ran across this article, it's called Building an Authenticated Python CLI, and it's from uh, Notia, Notia, Notia.ai, N-O-T-I-A. Anyway, uh, it's a blog post about building this. So, so here's the idea. So if you got a, um, uh, and it, for this application, you need Twitter authentication. So if you they're de- developing a command line applica- application that uh, has to use the Twitter API. To get that, we've got some secrets. You've got um, you've got a client ID and a secret that you've set up, and you need to uh, store the t- the Twitter token somewhere. So, you're going to do that OAuth exchange where you say we're going to connect to Twitter, and Twitter says this app is going to have you know yeah. interact with your account in this way and, and whatnot, right? 
Right. So I want to be able to just it, it, but I'd like to be able to have the application keep that around and not have to do that. Not, not really build it into the app. Like I don't want to compile it into the app or co- copy that token there. I want to be able to put that somewhere else. So the, the idea around this um, article is to take that, use the Twitter API. Uh, they talk about using click and rich a little bit, but uh, for the, the command line stuff and click is cool. Um, we, and we both love rich. Uh, and anyway, so the idea is to use a, 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 once you have, so use the OAuth and you come back and it's, you've got a bear, what they call it, a, uh, a, a bearer bear, token, a bearer token, and then <laughs> saving that in a file called a net RC file. And instead of, um, instead of telling somebody to just go put it there, um, they're reading, like asking the user for the, the client ID and the secret from from the Twitter API website stuff. So copy it and paste it here. And then they're storing that bearer, um, the bearer token in the, in the, the, um, uh, in the NetRC file. Um, and then the next time the application runs, it just reads that and it doesn't, you don't have to do it every time. And then that stuff isn't stored with the, with the client uh, code, but it's, uh, it's stored within the user NetRC file or something. So at first I thought this was something that you could use for like, uh, like use like, okay. So I, I don't know whether or not this is a good idea for, for that even whether you want to store your barrier stuff. Um, but, um, but you probably don't want to store, you don't want to ask the user for pass username and password and store that there. Cause it's just a text file, I think, uh, but maybe there's some other way around yeah. getting. I was kind of hoping I, that you- I'd rather lose uh, an OAuth token than I would my actual username and password because at least you can revoke the tokens or expire them and stuff, you know. Okay, so for token stuff, for saving tokens, this is this a reasonable thing to do to keep that in the user's directory or something? It seems like it's all right. I'm a little suspicious of storing straight plain text, even if it is just a an OAuth token. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I might, you know, I don't know exactly. I haven't read the article all the way through, but I might, I might encrypt the token and then store it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So actually, so I wanted to, I start this conversation and then ask people because um, either for token, I know there's other password ways to like store, store them locally safely, but you, is it something that can you do that with? Anyway, I'm just, lo- I'd love to hear people's thoughts on, uh, on, on this, on, on where, like how what's the best way to store people's secret information so they don't have to enter it every time um yeah but so storing in their user directory might not be terrible but maybe there's a better way so it's probably a operating system specific too but i don't know right well your your user profile is protected in general right from other users Right. But is it protected if you run an app that decides it's just going to go cruising through your user profile? You know, something that you ran and you shouldn't yeah. have trusted it, but you did. I mean, SSH token, SSH keys, private keys are there, right? In the .SSH folder. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that's probably worse than losing an OAuth token as well. So if you can guess, I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm in the design process for a command line application that has to store user credentials. So that's where <laughs> I was running Fantastic. across stuff yeah. like this. I mean, so. isn't that one of the benefits of doing this podcast? Is that a <laughs> <laughs> byproduct of our natural just working on new projects, like Flutter for me on the previous one, right? Like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, this is interesting and I see where it goes. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, cool. I would probably at least encrypt the token. I don't know, yeah. but okay. Thanks. maybe it doesn't matter. Well, awesome. They're done with our normal items. Um, 
I the so the extra stuff that I had uh, that I was going to let you go first, but I'm super excited um, that, that I'm getting a whole bunch Wait, done on the PyTest really quick course, before man. you go, really quick before you go on, just Sam yeah. Morley out there says that's why you should encrypt your secret keys and system tool chain is probably the correct in quotes answer. Okay, system tool chain. Okay, I don't even know what that means, but I'll look it up. Yes, this is something to go Taggy or DuckDuckGo or maybe Google. Okay, I, I'm I'm excited to hear about this PyTest course. Because people have been asking and progress is being significantly made, right? Awesome. How's yeah. It going? Yeah, it's going great. So I've got, uh, it's a, it's a, it's really seven chapters. It's broken up into seven sections uh, or chapters, but it's, you know, video course. So, but um, uh, I'm really excited about it because the, the, the PyTest book has received a lot of, uh, a lot of people love it, which is great. I love that. I got have a great feedback, but mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's detailed, right? So we d- jump into a whole bunch of the details. And with a book, you can kind of get to some section that you're like, yeah, I don't need that right now. And you can skip over it. And yes, you can do that with a course, but it's a little harder. So the, the goal for this is really uh, for people uh, new to PyTest or uh, unfam- that are just using a little piece of it and unfamiliar with, with some of the powers is to introduce people to the, like the full power of PyTest, but quickly and not overwhelm them. So I think I've done a good job, but we'll see. We'll get it edited and get it available to people as soon as we can. And yeah, excited. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited to check it out. That's going to be awesome. All right. How about you? Uh, Do you have well, anything extra? Good, good lead in. So brand new course over at TalkPython training, Django oh, nice. getting started, which is awesome. This is put together by Chris Trudeau. And this is a, a six hour course on Django. And right now people... Hurry, hurry. There's an early bird discount to save 10% uh, that you can get as well. So that just came out Wednesday. Wednesday is yesterday. So it came out yesterday, I think. That or the day before, very recently. Anyway, if you've been wanting to do uh, getting started in Django, if you want to get into Django, this is our Django course is really good. It, if you've been dabbling, you're like, oh, I really need to see how the pieces fit together better. Also, check it out. It's, it's definitely good stuff. Django, nice. one of the top two web frameworks these days still in Python. Yeah. Um, how... Do you know how many courses you've got on the platform now? 43 courses and about, that platform tells me, and 233 hours of, of content. So there's wow. more than that in there, but there are a couple are not published yet. There's some exciting ones coming. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, those are all the extras I have for now. I do have a joke for you, though. Oh, good. Are, are you a fan of The Lion King? You ever watched that show, The Lion King, the, the cartoon Disney? It was a Disney? I don't know. I saw it. I don't know if I'd call uh, me a fan, but sure. No. Oh, well, did you enjoy watching? I guess at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I watched it with my kids, and yeah, we we enjoyed it as well. And so um, I don't even remember the name of the father. Remember the name of the father? The the actual Lion King? No. You put me either. on the spot. Well, whatever. The yeah, exactly. I don't either. But the the little kid that was supposed to be the kid lion who was supposed to be being groomed to be the king is talking to his father, and they're looking over. The vast kingdom. It says, look, Simba, every language that light touches has a garbage collector. And Simba looks at him, but oh, what's that shadowy, shadowy place over there? That is C++. You must never go there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, C++, but yeah, that yeah. was fun. And Mufasa. Mufasa, yes. Thank yeah. you. Yes, yeah. you got it. Mufasa says, that's a C++. You must never go there. <laughs> no, but you should. Yeah. Don't take it too seriously. It's a joke, but it was fun. <laughs> As a garbage collector. <laughs> yeah, I know. What's that shadowy place over there? <laughs> you must never go there. Uh, what about Rust? Says, but what about Rust? 
Nice. So I don't even know enough about Rust to make this part of the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm busy learning Dart and Flutter. Maybe I don't have to learn Dart though, because I can do it in Python. I could just learn Flutter. We'll see. So that, that would be like, that is Rust. You can go there, but come back quickly. <laughs> exactly. Just short visits. Short, short visits. visits. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, a fun awesome. too. Well, uh, thanks for having this great episode. Yeah, this it's great to be back with you. Yeah. So, and <laughs> I guess we'll talk next week. Yeah. You bet. See ya. Bye.